Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I want to start this podcast by reading to you two different lines from two different poems in order to say one thing. The first is a line written by Arantati Roy. She writes, Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. For me, this line gets my blood pumping with excitement for pure and infinite possibility. It fills me with hope. In the same way that line, everything could always be otherwise, that opens our previous episode. This line also fills me with this desire to quieten my life and my head so that I can hear her breathing. But at the same time, Part of that excitement turns into horror. As I continue to imagine this breathing new world, the future, 50 years from now, a generation of people within it who make up this quietly breathing her, people that we gave birth to, they're ours. This her, whose breathing is only audible on a quiet day, only discernible, only glimpsed in the moments where we turn down the frenzy of our life right now. I wonder if her breathing is actually gasping. And then it reminds me of a poem by Stevie Smith, whose opening lines go like this. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought, and not waving, but drowning. As I lay these two poems side by side, written by two different people in different times with no connection, I imagine this her who is breathing, this other world on her way, as someone that we're not hearing, as someone much further out than we thought, too far out to see, too far out in a future we don't think about, too hard to hear amidst the noise of our present lifestyles. But if we could see, if we could be quiet enough to hear, we would hear that she is not breathing, but gasping, that she is not waving, but drowning. This is episode four of the Honest Citizen podcast reflections. If you loved episode three, then you'll really like this one as it's kind of a sequel to it where we're continuing to think through how we might change the way we live in order to be able to live. But if you haven't heard episode three yet, you're fine to start here, though I would really recommend going back to listen to our conversation with humanitarian research consultant Jen Thomas. 
about how everything could always be otherwise. Understanding coronavirus in relation to the climate emergency. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Sarah Schumacher, Director of Education, Tutor and Lecturer in Theology and the Arts at St. Melitus. Vocationally, she is foremost an artist, an artist who became a theologian and is now also a theologian of the arts. Her CV is way too long to detail, and you can Google her if you want. But for me, wherever I turn in my own journey through theology and the arts, there is Sarah, or someone pointing me to her. I'm not kidding, if there were time I would tell you about eight different moments where that's happened. So Sarah hails from the southern states of the US and she did her PhD at St Andrews in Scotland, which is so nice because those two facts have given her wise voice the most beautiful accent. I could listen to her all night, and in fact I did. I had two other meetings booked that evening that we spoke, but I ended up cancelling both of them because I just could not stop listening to her. I want to mention one area of her research. Sarah wonderfully articulates the value and significance of art making, what she describes as humanity's shared gift to shape God-given matter into items of meaning, and in particular in times of crisis where art can warn and challenge us. But Sarah goes further to describe something else about the arts that is also critical for us in this particular climate crisis we're facing now. She describes something that's not actually directly about the artworks themselves, but about the artist. The artist as someone who inhabits a worldview that we urgently need to consider. She tells the story of how the artist themselves offers us a viable and sustainable paradigm for human living. And this is the story she tells in this episode. And because we spoke for so long, this episode is really a collection of excerpts of our conversation rather than a continuous edit. She begins by sharing her own initial feelings of loss and control at the start of lockdown and losing her ability to imagine the future. I think the wrestle for me was around um, who's in control of the boat because <laughs> I like I'm a planner and you know I'm more strategic in the way that I think so I can usually do the work to like get from point A to point B mm. and I think all of a sudden I didn't know what point B was and mm. it was it was it was tough then I think what's had to happen over the last three months or two or three months you have to let go of what you could imagine and like that that verse in scripture that talks about God doing being able to do more than you can ask or imagine has been something that's really really sort of kind of I think I've really meditated on because actually that's what I felt like I was left with was I can't imagine the future anymore. So all I'm left with is that God can do more than I can ask or imagine because I actually can't imagine. And I'm quite an imaginative person. Like my imagination is something that's propelled me forward. Um, but to have that taken away was was hard. And I think it's probably only been in the last two or three weeks. You start to get like this little piece has now slotted into place and you can start to see something emerging um, but I, I feel different having journeyed through that point because I think I still feel like it's God who does more than we ask or imagine, not me. It's interesting what you say about uh, having suddenly being in a situation where you can't imagine the future because I think one of the things that we're trying to be intentional about in the 
some of the rituals of the Honest Citizen Club is to work together to respond to the possibilities and opportunities that are coming out of this for us to collectively imagine a new future because suddenly like everything that was isn't anymore so it's like oh, okay things actually can change so if they actually can change let's have some say in that and not just be kind of either led into something collectively in the future that we haven't had a say in or worse pushed just by default back to things when they could have been actually something else created so it's interesting to hear you say that actually being someone who has a strong sense of future imagination but that was actually the thing that you felt was taken away from you so yeah just interested in your reflections on that and also you said about how like you just started to get these like emerging glimpses and I wondered that when you say you're getting these emerging glimpses do you mean like of your own specific future or do you mean of the future generally for all of us I think I think it's the it's the latter part of what shifted is I think it start it's starting to feel rather than like the ground actively shifting beneath our feet or almost the ground being pulled out from underneath us, it started to feel like we were actually standing on something. Okay, I know what it's like. I know what social distancing might look like. I know to pop off the pavement whenever someone's coming the opposite way on the road. Or, you know, you kind of, you kind of now used to teaching online or, or whatever it is. And I think that stability meant that I wasn't having to spend all my energy trying to find my balance. And then I think then that sort of given me this sort of place to then like kind of look ahead. And I think then related to that, then you're starting to hear much more of people talking about, you know, what an amazing opportunity. It's almost like the Tier Fund has just launched a campaign called The World Rebooted. And it's all about this is like, as we move into this next season, um, let's campaign our politicians to ensure that green policies are at the core of what it looks like to restructure society. Let's ensure that our policies actually care for the poor and marginalized, that they're in there, they're just. I think that potential is really exciting because I think now that we're starting to process and get on the other side maybe of some of the acute grief of losing the life, I think we can all look back and start to say, actually, that wasn't a sustainable way of living anyway, and like how destructive it was for so many groups of people, but also for the planet. And I think then to, to think about being a part of constructing something that is new and that is just, and that is able to have different values at its center is really exciting. And I'm actually reading the, a book at the moment called The Year of Our Lord 1943, which was published not actually not very long before um, lockdown started. And it's written uh, about, in, so in 1943, um, that was a, a turning point in World War II where it was pretty much guaranteed that the Allies were gonna win the war. And around that time, there were a number of scholars and intellectuals and artists, all of whom who were Christian, who started to work together to think and start to imagine together of what does British society look like on the other side of this tragedy. And um, and out of that came a lot of you know, the good things, the good social systems that we've got at the moment. But I think it was something connected to, like there's a stability that's come because the war has turned and the allies are going to win. We've got some stable ground to stand on and we can now start to 
draw on all of our resources as scholars and as theologians and as intellectuals and as artists and really work together to imagine a future in, a, in the collective kind of way that you're talking about. So it's, you know, C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden and all, and all these groups, like they're all like in, like connecting with each other and, um, and really believed that um, kind of Christian thought had a part to play, not in rebuilding the church, but in rebuilding society. Like what's happened with George Floyd almost feels like, I don't know if I'd really have thought about it in this way before, but it feels like a piece of the puzzle that we probably weren't considering as fully two weeks ago, like the diversity and the inclusion and race. So when we're thinking about two weeks ago and imagined future, I think we were thinking about the planet, I think we were thinking about the economy, but I don't think we were really thinking about race and ethnicity, the way that we're going to think about it going forward from this point mm-hmm. um so it it also feels like it's almost like like don't like it would have been a massive oversight to move forward in reimagining without this being also a part of what's central to what it looks like now i mean and I may, I mean, maybe that's more of the kind of circles i ran in so i'm sure there are definitely others who are thinking about it but but it now all of a sudden feels like this also has to be a part of the reconstruction the reformation the reformation of of, of what society looks like i was talking about in the in the last podcast episode about um the idea of when everybody's moving into something new and nobody really knows what they're doing. It's like you have to play, like when you're learning a new game and you play an open hand, you have to kind of be able to give each other permission to talk about the way that you're doing something, which if you all knew the game, you'd then have a closed hand and it would be inappropriate to share. But you kind of need to have this like open agreement, like we can actually, while we're still in this way where we're trying to figure stuff out, we're gonna make mistakes. And so we need to be able to kind of play an open hand and. It makes me think about this group we used to have, a a friend of mine and I used to run this group years ago, uh, which was like a um, local neighborhood version of like a salon or something, but we would just have these uh, fortnightly events where it would be themed around some kind of theological topic and then we'd talk about it. But we called it intentionally, we called it the treehouse sessions because we wanted to put forward this idea of a thought exercise that could be likened to children playing make-believe or something, or like a, a child's play space that you could be free and have this agreement to almost like try on a thought and then be like, oh, this doesn't actually sit comfortably with me. I, I don't like this outfit, so I'm going to take it off and and know that you wouldn't be like pinned down and find yourself quoted and retweeted and you know, all of that. So I think it's that similar kind of gracious culture of being like, okay, we'll play an open hand here and we, we might be trying out new ways and new thoughts and, and like you said, get it wrong. But that's okay we give each other permission to do that because we know that we're all trying to just get to a new better more peaceful place and that takes us back to the kind of imagination because i think there's something in there about i mean we're playing with an open hand but it's even probably even more complicated because we don't have any rules like the rules are being rewritten so within this the imagination of like i wonder what happens if i play this card and then i wonder what happens if you play this card next so I think it's the imagination has to come back like once you then start playing again. But that's the real exciting thing is it's like, oh, well, then you can do this and these together. But there needs to be that permission to wonder. 
And I love the idea of the treehouse and being able to try ideas on and take them off because there's something in there about, there's a freedom that comes. Well, in some ways actually, because you're not limited in the sense of what I say, I'm not bound to. So it's like almost the inverse. But I suppose the limitation is you're sitting in the, in the treehouse. You're like, you know, within this theme, but I like to try on these different ideas. But I think that becomes in a really fun, imaginative act. This is one of the things actually that Ben was talking about on, on Monday evening was how Western logic tends to only have two modes, which is something is true or something is false. And in, I think it was Jewish logic, there's something called three value logic, which has true, false, and maybe. And like that, it's that maybe category that allows you to um, to conjecture, to imagine something, to kind of throw something out there that you're not sure is true, to have that, you have to have that category in your like conceptual way of thinking, because if it's like either it's true or it's false, you can't actually wonder because you're, you're trying to decide, is it this or is it that? And I wonder if that's, if that sense of play is a really important kind of like way to understand what's happening in that space. Because children do this so naturally, don't they? Of imagination and, you know, wondering and, and making up rules all the time. This is what, I mean, we've got nieces who are five and I mean, the rules don't always make sense, but they, <laughs> but they're definitely like rules of engagement, but they're not any rules that they've received from adults. And they're not any rules that they've received from books because they're not reading. They've made these rules of engagement, but they're also, I'm sure it's maybe the case for your kids. They're also um, very flexible. So sometimes the rules apply, sometimes they don't, but it's almost like they naturally sit within that middle space of a maybe. And I guess I wonder if that is partly the gift of this time is that we're, we're being collectively pushed into that, into that middle space. And I guess it will be then the question of who's, who's participating and to what extent are we free to play? And to what extent are we free to imagine? And what, to what extent are we free to wonder? I actually feel as we're moving out of lockdown, well, there's some, and I'm looking forward to seeing friends and family and things again, but I feel like leaving this, there does come a bit of sadness because I think actually this was a really unique time. And you feel like, I feel like I've been almost like a bit of a retreat. And you know, it's not, it can't be long-term, like it's not sustainable, but I'll miss it. I think I'll miss, I'll miss the freedom of, like I'll miss the freedom that's come with like having a very simple life. It makes me wonder then like living in somewhere like London where we all live here and deal with the frustration of London because of what London gives you in the sense of like in return, you get the galleries and the museums and the theaters and the restaurants and all of these things. And, and I'm sure that once that's all back up and running, I will be glad to have it back, but I haven't missed it like I thought I would. Like there's just been something really nice about it's been nice something nice about not having to choose what I do because that's the other aspect of living in London isn't it it's like you're constantly aware of what you're not doing um so that's been yeah that's been nice as well yeah they are talking about I can't remember the phrases it might be like lockstalgia or something but they're oh, really they're <laughs> like next summer we'll be like oh do you remember those days but I think it's just really interesting you saying about the kind of freedom of ordinariness and also that kind of psychological piece of not having choice and I think both of those things bring me to thinking again about the stuff that you started to tell me when we were at the 41 film festival um mm. around just thinking around the connection between the artistic worldview mm. and I think at the time you were talking about the climate crisis and the need that we have to 
positively embrace ideas of limitation because of the climate crisis, but what we actually can learn from artists, not just the art themselves, but artists and artistic worldview. And of course, we didn't know this was coming and I thought, wow, what you were saying was so germane then and how much more so now. And just wanted to invite you to just share a little bit about this research and thinking that you're doing. And I'm also really aware that you also talk about it quite sensitively and cautiously because particularly in the times we're in now, it can also very easily be a very privileged thing to, you know, we don't want to romanticize limitation for people where limitation is actually often imposed upon them. Um, so that's why I really want you to articulate it because I know that you've really done a lot of work to think that through with all of its nuance. I suppose I'll start with returning to how I was thinking about this in relation to the climate crisis and then we can move forward to thinking about because I have I've thought loads about my research um, but I think one of the things that I noticed when in the discussion and the rhetoric around climate change was that a consistent message was if we're really going to tackle what is happening that all of us are going to have to impose limitation on our Western lifestyle in a, in a range of different forms. And I found myself with talking to people who, but one of a better word, weren't already the choir that I was singing to, that sense of being told that they wouldn't be able to do something was like a real cause of distress about, um, about the climate emergency. And I think that then got me thinking about what is the thing that we are actually running into when we have these kind of dis this discourse about climate about how we should about ethics really and in relation to the environmental crisis and i think what i realized is that what we are running into head on is what can only really be described as a secular understanding of freedom which is my freedom is defined by my capacity to transcend my limitation and my freedom is defined by my ability to choose and um and it's i mean it has a long philosophical history really kind of from kind of post enlightenment onwards but it it's it's pervasive and it comes out in little ways like you know something like i don't have a premium account with spotify i have a free account and so you get these you know adverts every three or four songs and one of the adverts will say something like you have the right to choose whatever song you want to play whenever you want to play it. It's this, and it's playing off this like secular understanding of freedom, which is like at any time I can choose what I want to choose. Which so when you talk about you're going to have to limit the way that you live, you're running into this very very deep subconscious subliminal sense of what it means to be a Western human. Which then the problem of that becomes. If you have that perspective, when you hear that you're going to have to make changes to attend to the climate crisis, through that lens of the secular understanding of freedom, all I can see is what I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose my cheap flights to Europe. I'm going to lose the convenience packaging or, or whatever it is. But what also I noticed was that for a Christian understanding of freedom is the opposite of that, which is the paradox of Christian freedom is that we are most free when we're living within the boundaries that God has set for us. And I think then you see that worked out in the best bits of human society. So somehow the paradox is when you limit yourself to love one person in marriage, it's somehow the greatest expression of human love that there could be, but it comes because of the choice to limit. 
And then you see that in, you know, in, in what Jesus did and that he limited himself to a human body. And, you know, that limitation was the fullest expression of his of his humanity in some ways. And so so I think then I was like, well, how how do I reconcile these two things? And then what I noticed was that the artistic perspective, the artistic worldview and how I think an artist has to create aligns much more alongside the Christian understanding of freedom, which is that when you're creating as an artist, you have to make decisions quite early on that set put boundaries in place. So whether you're painting and you're going to do a massive canvas or a tiny one entirely changes how you create subject matter that you use, um, what medium you're going to use, where it's going to be located or how it's going to be engaged with or who's your audience or whatever it is. All those boundaries or limitations are necessary. Otherwise, the work will never come true to fruition. So I think what I noticed then was artistic creativity is a way by which we can reimagine this sense of limitation, not as something that is negative, but as something that makes something possible. So, so it's like, it's almost like you shift the frame. So if you look at it through a secular understanding of freedom, all I can see is what I'm losing. If you shift it and look at it through the lens of a more artistic worldview, which is I think much closely aligned to the Christian understanding of freedom, you start to see what it makes possible. You know, so if we say the issue is single use plastic, it's not about losing all your convenience packaging, but it's about the creativity that comes when actually we can no longer use single use plastic and we have to come up with something else. And so it's, it's like, it's just a shift in the focus and it's like a shift in, it's a shift in your imagination and then, and then it activates the imagination. And I think that's what we were really starting to see whenever you know, earlier, earlier on towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year, this, this real sense of like, of real burgeoning creativity around how do we, if we're, if we're going to set some of these limitations, what does that mean? Well, then COVID happens and that's like limitation kind of par excellence. But I think though, what's been interesting is I think going, maybe going back even to my earlier point of I think how I've seen people gravitate towards making is it does seem like the limitation of being at home has generated a certain form of creativity and artistry. But I think also if you extend sort of creativity also to relationships and connections. And I think all of a sudden we've become quite creative and and how we use Zoom and how we, like all of a sudden we're, like because we, we don't have an option. So, you know, we, we can sit, we could, I mean, we could still be spending our time sort of looking through the lens of all that we've lost, but we've like taken this collective shift to turn to say, actually this is the limitation that we're living in. And so what does it make possible? I think that that, I suppose, is like limitation at its best. Now, of course, at its worst, this, I think, is is just a, a point of constant discernment, is when does limitation become constraint? Because you have to have limitation to create. I mean, I, I used to work as a graphic designer. The worst thing you could ever be told by a client was you can do whatever you want. Because it's just like, well, where do, like, where do I go with that? And so that sense of like no limitation, A, it never was true, but also it like didn't create any parameters by which you could actually create. But equally, I think I also experienced, you get a folder for marketing. I used to work for a greedy card company. They were getting a, a folder for marketing and it was Christmas card season. And it was, we want a red card with three traditional angels on it with words across the top 
you with a target audience of a 55 to 64 year old woman. And to me, that was like limitation that became a constraint because it was like there was no there was no actually creativity to generate because it had all been predetermined by someone else by well by the market I suppose really. The hard bit of human living is that if we go back to our earlier conversation. We want it to be true or false, but I, the reality is, is we all live in the maybe. <laughs> and and I think like with something like limitation, that I think one of our constant battles is to not fall off either edge, which is either to no limitation, which I think is a fallacy anyway, but I think that sense of total, total and complete freedom, my freedom is marked by my ability to transcend limitations, which actually just means I've got the privilege to transcend limitations because someone else is being bound by my expression of freedom. Um, But then the other end is freedom when it becomes constraining and constricting and silencing. And I, I guess I've come to the point where I think the lifelong one of the lifelong struggles is to constantly be aware of wh- where are you and have you fallen off on either side. But I think though, that's where something like talking about the Christian understanding of freedom as something that is paradoxical, because it's something that two things are held together as true at the same time, even though they feel opposing. And I, and I think there is something then about just having to hold that tension It's easier to have things really, really, really clearly defined. And I wonder if that's when it becomes constraint. Because once it's over here, I know what I'm going to get. And I I can control how someone's going to act. Or if I make a greeting card with three angels that's red with writing across the top to a 55 to 64 year old woman, I'm pretty much determining what a 55 to 64 year old woman is going to want to buy. And so that's what I will give them. So well, if that's what I give them, then of course they will buy it. So it becomes this like self-perpetuating yeah, circle of, of limitation. But I think it's probably there in that case, it's as much about wanting to control the action of someone else. than it is really probably more of what you want to have happen in the one who receives the work in as much as it is about, because the artist is moot at that point. I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be an artist who's creating that. But I think there's something about the response you want the other person to have. So you kind of constrain, constrain, constrain. When it comes to creativity, I think that may be one one example. But of course, and I think this is what we're seeing at the moment, there are systems of limitation that are constraint. And, um, and I suppose the only response is repentance. But I think I do wonder if it's really closely tied to that sense of control. Like we want to stay in control of either it's the power we have or the privilege we have or or whatever. But, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about when I was reading the website about the related to the project and about scarcity and how, of course, there are aspects of human living of which it's only abundance. So love and empathy and things. But there are also aspects that are that there is a scarcity and power being one of them. Like there is only so many seats at the table. You know, so in some ways like that is probably one of those places where scarcity is is as a reality. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't generate and stretch. It actually becomes constraining. Um, and so then it becomes about, because it's a limited resource, it becomes about grabbing onto it and holding onto it. And so in order to hold onto my power, I have to control someone else's behavior. Otherwise they might take my power from me. Whereas with love and empathy and all those things, it's the opposite. Like you just give and give and give and it just grows and grows and grows. Yeah. It's, it's kind of actually now just sort of thinking, thinking out loud and trying to connect the dots. But 
like I, I've seen this for, I've seen this dynamic very much at play kind of at, you know in the you know everything from like I said earlier from the people who this limitation of time is generating a lot of creativity but also the like other side where his limitation has led to constraint of centuries of constraint that's now that's actually in some ways erupted into what is a really dare we say is, is it a creative act i don't know these protests is i mean is it a it's a it's a creative constructive act i mean has it broken its bonds to say we want to imagine a new future we want it to be different going forward so it's almost a sense of can kind of at some point does if we get so like bound do we erupt into like something that is that is generative or is that is that potential latent i don't i mean this now i'm now i'm just just um playing with some ideas but i but i wonder if there's if there's something because i think you could see these protests as they're definitely constructive and they're definitely seeking to imagine a new future and they're trying to create something um, some of it's destructive. I mean, I think even, I mean, that's the complexity, isn't it? Because even in the midst of the protests, there are aspects of it that are destructive. So it seems like it's, it seems like these two, these things sort of, it's like you're, it's like you're walking a tightrope and you're, you're always at danger. It feels like you're kind of at danger of falling on one or the other. And, and I think it's just something about the, the like kind of the, the true human life is some is 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 te- it's just tension. It's holding things in tension. It's just tension. I wanted to finish on this note because it feels like an odd place to stop. Tension is something that, narratively speaking, is generally not how you finish things. Things need to be resolved. We don't want to remain in a state of tension, and certainly that's true so far as we're thinking of tension in terms of conflict. But that's not what Sarah means by the term here. Tension actually can be the characteristic, the hallmark of a context of genuine community and sharing and generosity. Like when two people play tug-of-war, in the moment when both of them have equal share of the rope, the rope is held in tension, and in that moment it has form. And where there is form, there is art. In tug-of-war, The resolution to that tension is found by one person gaining all of the rope and the other person having none. The one with all of the rope feels limitless, but actually all they have is a lump of rope. No tension, no form, no art. In the beginning, before there was art and beauty, there was limitlessness. Limitlessness was anti-art, an anti-aesthetic. Limitlessness was formlessness, without boundary and definition. No shape or shine to elicit desire. No curating eye to say this and not that, here and not there. Then we humans and all of nature were made in all of our splendid formfulness our particularity and boundariedness, our lines drawn in pleasant places. Limitlessness was replaced with beauty. But a serpent from corporate arrived and told us that we were not artworks, we were prisoners. 
We were led into anxiety about our limitations and sold the lie that limitlessness was both achievable and desirable. We were not enough being this and not that as well. We were not enough being here and not there as well. We were not enough doing this and not that as well. We were unsatisfactory and so we should be unsatisfied. We should then seek satisfaction for we need it and it's attainable and corporate knows the way. Then a wise man named Aquinas cautioned us to the question, what would it take to satisfy our desire? He replied, everything. And now I'm quoting John Mark Comer's paraphrase of Aquinas. We would have to experience everything and everybody and be experienced by everything and everybody to feel satisfied. Eat at every restaurant, travel to every country, every city, every exotic locale, experience every natural wonder, make love to every partner we could possibly desire, win every award, climb to the top in every field, own every item in the world. We would have to experience everything now in order to be satisfied. So Arcade Fire wrote a song about the myth of limitlessness called Everything Now. But we were already fully caught up in the pursuit of the myth of limitlessness, not knowing how much danger we were in and danger we were causing. We thought we were unbound by limitation, not knowing that limitlessness does not exist, that what was really happening was that our limitations were being transferred to somebody else to bear, sent across the borders of space, to be borne by someone else without the choice otherwise, or across the borders of time to people who haven't yet been born, someone we will never know, carrying our limitations so that we can play pretend in the myth of limitlessness. We didn't know because we'd had abundance defined by the market and by prosperity preachers that it didn't mean always having more, it means having enough. In order to move the story forward, to have a story at all, we must, as Sarah says, pay attention to the artist, to notice how they view the world, how they embrace limitation, and how within it, with a discerning and trained eye, they're able to find and feel the freedom within it, to move beyond the consumer lens through which all we can see is what we are going to lose. We recognize that as we begin to press down on the brakes of our own pursuit of limitlessness, we are in the same moment beginning to lift our knees off of the necks of all the oppressed, of everyone who bears the cost of our limitless freedoms. We finish this podcast not with a fully articulated or fully illustrated vision of a culture of shared positive self-limitation, but with a selection of small fragments, tiny glimpses from different people who've experienced the artistic lens upon their limitation and discovered what they gain when they lose that the secular, profane, consumerist lens is unable to discern. The thing that I've found that I have... 
gained during this time of limitation is finding a sense of community, which is something that I definitely felt had been missing in my life beforehand. Um, And it was because we were all having this shared experience. So suddenly I was having, you know, video calls with friends um, some pe- some of them I m- might not even normally talk to all the time or, or see very often because of work being so busy. Um, so there's a sense of community with that. And then also <laughs> with like the clap for carers, um, I think I've moved house about 10 times since I've been in London and I've never known my neighbours. So to suddenly get to know people in the street and see the same faces and suddenly be saying hello to people as you walk past them has been amazing. I guess having lost being able to go out for dates with nowhere to go and no one to mind the kids, last week our date night was sitting together on the sofa listening um, start to finish to a Stephen Rennox album. We didn't go anywhere, uh, didn't see anything, didn't splash the cash, didn't eat or drink even, uh, didn't try to be or do anything that fantastical. Just sat there, in fact, in total silence. And what we gained by what we'd lost was a night that was just us and not us plus consumerism or plus pretense. Uh, We got the return of something we hadn't done together for years, which is just sitting and listening to an album straight through paying it its due attention, engaging with the worthwhile piece of art that it is and the work that goes into making it, uh, but that we all live so oblivious to and even dismissive towards usually. Um, so we experience the enjoyment and also the deep and present connection of just sharing something in silence and solitude together. Lockdown has given me freedom from FOMO. <laughs> Uh, knowing that everyone is in their house, unable to do fun things, um, really helps with uh, extrovert slash Enneagram 7, who loves to do things and see people. And it's removed options that actually can be quite overwhelming to uh, feel like there's many things you could be doing and you're not doing any of them. It's just lifted that pressure. In being limited uh, to the local during lockdown, I've come to hugely appreciate being physically, um, practically and emotionally uh, rooted in my local community. And I have been absolutely loving that my lockdown life in all of its limitations has been peppered with um, socially distant doorstep chats uh, with people who I can get to within two minutes with a toddler, being in neighbours' gardens and uh, it's been wonderful and as those limits um, leave and we are able to see friends who live further away again, I want to remember and retain um, just the beauty and the richness of being locally rooted and having lots of time to be where I live and uh, in that community. There is definitely some beauty in in simplicity and having to stay at home during lockdown, not being able to go out, it helps you to reflect and observe beauty in simplicity and being without can actually mean being with and recognising how 
how much we do have and what what has developed inside of us. We've had to distill ourselves down to the core and accept and sit with what we actually are and can achieve and shed what we pretend to be or are able to achieve. Less of us having the capacity or the tools at our disposal to uphold layers of pretense and self-insulation makes you wonder if the abundance of acquaintances masquerading as friendships might fall away. I think I've gained a few things during lockdown. First of all, I know I, I buy less. Usually when I'm out and about, you pop into a shop maybe to get a sandwich or some food, you see some other things, you pick them up too. And that, that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, I avoid shops, <laughs> have been for months, and I go on the internet to buy things that I specifically need. Uh, so that's been really good. I think also, actually just, I'm very busy <laughs> with work and childcare, but I'm not dashing around as much as I used to and having that slower pace of life has been really good and restful. The awareness that's come about of how differently others have been affected by the pandemic and how different their lives are both in and out of lockdown can't be overstated in its importance for me. I think we need to endeavour to sustain this new insight and level of understanding of just how differently the lives of our neighbours might be and how we might become more connected to one another across that. For the simple things to become luxuries, that's a big takeaway. Healthy, sane, self-limitation as a shared collective experience seems to be a context for peace, for the relief of anxiety, a context for possibility, for that which lies beyond what we can hope for or imagine. This brings me back to Arantati Roy's poem. What does it mean to only be able to hear this other world on quiet days? I think it means in days or in lives lived in the quietness of contentment and self-limitation. Days without grabbing. Ordinary days without the frenzied anxious noise of the dissatisfied pursuit of limitlessness. What I take from this poem is that this other world can't just only be heard in quietness, it can only come into being through quietness. Nothing less than the whole world is what we are set to lose in our mad hunt for everything now. Nothing less than the whole world is what we may gain together when we lose in self-limiting styles of living. It is the inheritance reserved for those of peace. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who live quietly, for they shall hear her breathing. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is brought to you by Fur. We communicate Christian theology and worldview through contemporary art, cultural artifacts, and new rituals to create fresh encounters with the faith for emerging generations. Stay tuned for more episodes as we reflect together over the next few months of the Honest Citizen Kindness and Courage Club. You can do so by subscribing to our podcast, which is called That Which Carries. You can also see our other projects on our website, furproduction.com. And if you like what we do, consider joining our small group of founding patrons. Their support currently covers half of our monthly costs, 
So with your help, we will be able to continue to do this work. For all our latest, follow us on Instagram at Fur Production or Twitter Fur underscore production. This episode was edited by Mike and Hansen and music by Officer. Christianity through art, Christianity as art.